Hello and welcome back to the Reformed Affections podcast. In the previous episode, I was looking in Psalm 1 and a couple of different themes. Uh, and today I'm going to be looking at Psalm 2. Um, and I'm going to be talking about blessed nations, wicked nations, and God's antidote. And so in Psalm 2, verse 1 through 7, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In this psalm, it's heavily steeped in speech. The nations gather and speak, plotting against God. They declare their intentions. God in turn returns with laughter, then speaks through his wrath. The Lord declares the anointing of his son as the Christ. We have the conversation between God and the chosen one, giving judgments and declaring inheritance. The kings of the earth are commanded to be wise and turn to God. It's interesting that the psalm doesn't mention a rise to physical violence, but stays at that verbal aggression. The prophecy of the raging nation goes beyond the time of the writing of the psalm and is actually quoted by the people of God in Acts 4 as being fulfilled in the Gentiles, the Israelites, Herod and Pontius Pilate in their condemnation and crucifixion of Christ. See, this is the ultimate conspiracy against God. In this world, in every age, all people can attest to the global divide between nations, cultures, religions and societies, and even political parties. We know of no unifying concept or event. But there, in Israel in the first century, at the judgment seat of Pilate, the known world was unified. It was unified in a devastating hatred against God, against justice and against righteousness. The Israelites who hated Rome and its occupation over Jerusalem, a Roman governor who hated the Jews and, and an Herod who had never liked Pilate had all come together in unity against Christ to kill God's anointed one. And so I first want to talk about these wicked nations. In Exodus uh, 19 verse 5 through 6 reads, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God led the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt under the power of Pharaoh and gave them an escape through the parting of the Red Sea. When he had brought Israel to Mount Sinai, he said to them, See how I have delivered you. Now obey my instruction, uphold the covenant. So this is the blueprint of a blessed nation. God has given us all, individually and nationally, an escape from enslavement if we trust in Christ, obeying his instruction. But this is not the way of the world. We can look to many of the so-called Christian countries and note abundantly their deviation from the biblical model. England, America, Australia, Germany, France, Scotland, all of these once proud Christian nations who promoted godly principles and upheld the name of Christ and honour have all fallen to the wicked deception of the world. Children are no longer reared in biblical uh, models and ethics of morals. They're not reared in biblical households or churches. 
They're no longer brought up by godly parents who listen to God's instruction in Deuteronomy 6-7 and diligently teach to their children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. The scriptures are no longer held in high esteem as the true words of God and thus families are suffering, nations are suffering. Godly, blessed nations accept and acknowledge God as the true sovereign Lord and keeper of all things. They trust God as the one who has established them as stewards on earth in his name. Wicked nations are not so. They promote wickedness. They actively promote pride and wicked living. We have pride days yearly to promote sexual sin that entire empires have been internally destroyed by. The Western world in, in our day as it sinks into this sexual sin is falling apart at the seams. Sodom and Gomorrah both paid in complete destruction for their own advancement in sexual sin. Wicked nations do not promote the godly biblical household of one husband and one wife. Marriage is no longer viewed as something ordained under the eyes of God. It has become an official title for those who love each other and while it was forged under the pretense of loving one another, can equally be broken when that love fizzles out. God commands that husbands and wives love each other and let not man separate them. The world says once you are no longer receiving that subjective fulfilment that you are longing for, then you should just leave. And children are not given the protections and the guardianship that is biblically prescribed. Ephesians 6 4 says, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. See, we are commanded by the word of God to raise our children up in the teaching of God. Remember how in Psalm 1, it told us how the blessed man delights in the instruction of the Lord. And yet, blessed children are reared in the knowledge of God. And as we move back to the nations and the rulers that seek wickedness, we move to Psalm 10, verse 13, where the wicked has said in his heart, God will not require an account. We hear often in agnostic and philosophical circles, but if there is a God, then he's not a personal being, he's a strange, higher life force that runs through all living things and in some way gives life to all and recycles it in a reincarnation cycle. God created all things and seeks to hold a relationship with all who acknowledge him as God and Lord. But beyond the fellowship of the saints with God, there is the truth that God is the judge over all of creation and he will judge in righteousness. Psalm 24 reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. We are all under the jurisdiction of God and fall under the confines of his law. Like the rulers and judges of our nations who seek to dispense justice according to the laws of the land, God has established a law that he put in our minds and wrote on our hearts. He delivered the Ten Commandments over to Moses at Mount Sinai and reiterated them through Christ, who condensed them down to two. Love the Lord your God of all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love is the foundation of righteousness in God's holy law. See, even wicked rulers and individuals like ourselves have an internal desire for a certain sense of justice. We all scorn at injustice done to ourselves, but then we show our fallenness when injustice falls upon those we dislike, and then we become indifferent. The godless nations are devoid of true justice and are themselves guilty of violating God's laws and therefore are liable 
for God's wrath and just repayment. But how does Psalm 2 tell us that, that God will handle these wicked nations who plot and rebel against him? He says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God has established Christ as the instrument of his wrath and justice on the great day of judgment. He will descend on the clouds of a multitude of angels to destroy the dominion of the wicked on that great and terrible day. So as we move from that wicked nation outlook, we're going to look now at the divine antidote. How God will solve this issue of the wicked nations and multitudes on the earth. And so the wicked nations and all who are set against God took it upon themselves to kill Christ in the first century. This doesn't, however, excuse those who were not physically present at his death or not yet even born. The denial of Christ in our own lives is another vote of condemnation to the death of the glorious Son of God. But how God responds to this conspiracy against the Son is completely unexpected. The psalm goes on to tell us that God firstly laughs at this congregation of ungodly counsel and plotting. Then he describes how he will handle the nations. Verse 5 tells us that speaking to them in wrath, he will place his king on the holy hill of Zion. So following this, following this point along, we have the chosen king declaring God's words to him. You are my son, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. God's answer to mankind's sinful rebellion is the anointing of Christ as the king of kings and lord of lords over the earth. And God's wrath will shine forth in the coming day of the Lord, that great and terrible day where Christ will come with a multitude, pouring judgment on the world, and the entirety of the earth will melt and tremble in fear. The prophet Isaiah declares, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. The anointing of Christ as king over the world will see him be appointed, of course, as its ruler, but also as its judge. And if we are not found upholding the covenant that God set before us in Christ, not trusting and resting in him for salvation, then we will fall under his judgment and will by no means enjoy his fruitful reign. Verse 12 instructs us to kiss the son, lest he be angry and we perish. Kissing the king, bowing down in humility to him as fallen men, requiring his mercy, has wrapped up in it the glories of true worship. If we are to reach out to take hold of his hand, pay homage and worship him, then we will enter into that blessed fellowship in the grace of Christ, our Lord and Saviour. We have in the incarnation of Christ, God taking flesh upon himself, placing himself under that covenant of works that he would be subjected to the same principles as us. The one who would redeem us from under the law must be one who can fitly be judged under the law. Christ as God alone could not be subject to law as he would not be a man and therefore would not enter into the covenant of works between God and man as a subject. Salvation required that Christ would descend and take on humanity that he could justly stand in our place, a scapegoat for our sin, the lamb who would take our guilt. Yet the atoning death, wherein he bore our guilt and took our punishment, soaking up that wrath of God and justified us before God, is one factor of his gracious working that has given us tremendous blessing. There is a factor of his death that is vastly overlooked. And this is what the Apostle tells us in Colossians 2.15. 
having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in them. His death on the cross marked a significant point of time in the history of the church. At this exact point, the evil groups who fight against the people of God were disarmed. Christ had ridiculed them, humiliated them in his cross of victory. The wicked nations and rulers, the evil people who had conspired against him, for they had finally won the victory by crucifying the Lord of glory, and yet what seemed like their victory in putting the Son to death was in reality a victory of God against the evil powers of this world. Satan's enterprise of sin and wicked deceit was dealt a crushing blow as the Son of God conquered as a mighty general through his own death. And some people see in the death of Christ a failure, a weakness, but we see in it as Christians the greatest display of love and mysterious glory that there ever was. That thou, my God, shouldest die for me, as the hymn goes, sings of that mystery, a note that should ring true in all of our hearts. What am I? Who am I? That the Son of God would take the weakness of human flesh to himself in order to ransom me from the clutches of the devil and redeem me from the curse of the law. See, the devil used the law against us, wielded it like a weapon to crush the people of God. The law still burns against us the debt today, telling us that we're not worthy of God's mercy, and each time we sin feels like a step that God takes away from us and, and us from him. But at the cross, the guilt of our sins met with the mercy of God. Our deserved punishment was met with the wrath of God, and our burden was released from us. No longer does God view us through that covenant of works to our condemnation. Rather, he views us through that covenant of grace, initiated in the Son, and sustains us in fellowship with himself. So, we can join with the Apostle and trumpet these truths. Ephesians 2.13 We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 15 He abolished the enmity in the flesh. And in verse 18 Through him, Christ, we have access by one spirit to the Father. We should rejoice in these truths. And I just want to end by echoing Paul's great benediction in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.